This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter, missionary, and the man behind the Williams key, Trevor Williams. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from the missionary work that led Trevor and his family overseas, his personal experience in the Haitian earthquake as a civilian, his journey into the fire service, forcible entry, innovation, entrepreneurship, 
joining the special operations team that responded to Haiti years prior, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find, because this is a free library of 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Trevor Williams. Enjoy. Well, Trevor, I want to start by saying thank you so much for connecting on social media and for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you, James. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad we were able to work it out. So for people listening, we are recording now. This is a new thing on the Behind the Shield podcast. And when I first, the video first popped up, there was this majestic beard, which you do not see in the fire service normally. So why don't we start with that? How is it that you were able to play a Viking Halloween last night? Yeah, we did a great uh, Viking theme, the whole family, last night. Um, I've got two little baby girls and a wife. And um, yeah, I was able to take advantage of this beard if you're uh, watching this. Um, I've been off of work for a couple months. I had a, had a baby, so I went off on FMLA to be able to spend time with my wife and, and kids. And then I had a hernia that needed to have surgery. So I'm a couple of weeks recovered from a hernia surgery. And in the meantime, I've been growing this beard out. So as a firefighter, you, you definitely cannot have a beard, um, at least uh, like a structural firefighter, maybe some wildland you can. Um, but yeah, this is going to have to go once I go back to work. Can't wait to go back to work. Um, it seems like it's been too long, but also enjoying the time with the family here at home. Now, this is going to be a weird question because you've literally got two young, young children. Because they're, what, 10, 10 months apart? Have I got that right? Uh, just over a year apart. Just over a year, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're, you're having a lot of sleepless nights at home. But coming from the shift schedule that you have in, in California, did you notice the difference when you got off shift after a few years of working? Yes and no. I, I feel like at the at the firehouse um it, sometimes you'll get lucky and and you only get one call at night or or maybe once in a blue moon you'll sleep through the night um my my station is out of west hollywood so it's typically very busy at night there's a lot of nightclubs and things that happen at night that go wrong so we are up a lot at night over there um but yeah i'll i'll get lucky from time to time um but coming home with two babies that are very needy at, at this stage. They're both in diapers. Um, it seems like there's less sleep going on. Um, and my wife had a rough um, delivery, uh, multiple surgeries. She almost died. Like she had internal bleeding. They had to go back and uh, open her up again to do like exploratory um, emergency surgery. 
So she's like, I've had to take care of her along with like two crying babies. And then she's had to take care of me with my hernia and then the recovery from that. So there's been some struggles. Um, and I definitely miss like the routine of going into work, working, maybe getting up at night, maybe not coming home and then having like no kids and being able to sleep through the night and recover a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's a season. Um, we'll get through it and we're trying to find our rhythm. Um, but it seems like it's constantly, constantly changing, but it's, it's a good thing. Like I, the being a father is a new thing for me, you know, within the last year and a half. Um, so I'm learning to appreciate it and it's hard work, but it's definitely work you want to be doing. It's interesting because you got to see that separately. Now you put those two together, which is what a lot of us do. I mean, my little boy was colicky. So at the moment I got through the front door, a baby was handed to me and he would cry on and off for 24 hours until, you know, I did the California shift in Anaheim for a few years. So it was, you know, one on one off and then the four or the six at the end. And yeah, it was brutal. So you get to see it without that. And another thing, one of my friends, he almost lost his wife to the same thing. She wow. delivered, they, I think, were discharged, and then she just started bleeding out and almost died. Um, so that's something that a lot of us don't think about is just because you initially deliver doesn't mean that everything's great. You know, you got to be aware of some of those those scary warning signs because he literally, from what I understand, was hours from losing his wife, which is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I found myself in the delivery room with two babies, a newborn baby, and then an, my other young daughter. And they had whisked my wife out without telling me much other than we got to move her now, going to surgery and hours of just, oh man, I hope she's okay. Like, and then thinking like, what if she's not okay? Oh man, I have these two babies. Like, how am I going to take care of them without a wife? And a lot goes through your head during those times, but luckily um, pulled through, you know? Excellent. Well, we are speaking obviously over Zoom. Where are we finding you on planet Earth this afternoon? I'm based out of Los Angeles, California, a um, little city called Azusa. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. Brilliant. Well, you have a very unique early life, so we're going to spend some time there. Let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were actually born and tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Okay. Um, I was born in Richmond, Virginia, and I was the, f the firstborn, um, so only child for a little bit. My dad at the time was an attorney, and I believe my mom was just taking care of me um, during the early years. Um, when I was four, my dad and, and my mom felt called to be missionaries. So my dad stopped being a lawyer and went to Africa and brought all of us with him to work for a company called World Vision, which is a large nonprofit organization. Um, one of the, I, I think it's the largest Christian um, NGOs in the world. And they're in almost every country. So um, he took us to a country called Zaire. It, it was called Zaire at the time. It's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and this was back in 94. So um, during that time, there were uh, the Rwanda genocides were going on and uh, Zaire borders Rwanda. So we, before long, uh, I, I don't remember 
it being like bad when we first got there, but not not long after, um, it, it we started to be impacted by that uh, the Rwanda fighting and the civil unrest and people would friends that kind of knew us that were local would would come and give us their valuables to hold for them in case something happened to them um, during those dangerous times. Um, so eventually it got too dangerous for us to continue staying in Zaire and we evacuated kind of um, to South Africa, Johannesburg in South Africa and stayed there for a year while things cooled off in Zaire. Now, during this time, that's when it got its name changed just because of the war that was going on. So by the time we went back, it had been changed to DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And we were there not not long before it just, it was too dangerous to be in Africa uh, whatsoever. So we had been there about four years total. And we now legit evacuated to um where we go connecticut uh where my mom had family on that side but i remember um and i've actually never shared this but i remember the airplane taking off and we were like late getting to the airport and it came back around landed so that we could get on it was a big airplane um and so that we could actually evacuate out of africa and um I remember like feeling really awkward that, you know, like that never happens, right? A plane comes back for you and just cause we're so special or whatever, but no, it was like, it was cause it was really dangerous and they just needed to get as many people out as possible. Um, so what can, do you remember about that time? I know you were younger, um, like yeah. you said, four. Um, you know, when I think of that, I actually had a guest, uh, Ishmael Bay, who's uh, from Sierra Leone. So not right there, but when you heard him talk about being an innocent young boy, you know, and they, they loved hip hop and he was just having a normal childhood. And then that broke out and his parents were murdered and he was forced to become a boy soldier and truly forced either you die or you fight. It's one of the two, um, you know, you get to see inside some of these horrors. So what, you know, when you first got there, I'm assuming maybe, maybe through your parents, um, storytelling, cause you were so young, was it immediately war torn or was there a kind of devolution over the years? Um, I think I was sheltered at first, um, by my parents cause four year old boy, you know, they don't want to expose me to the things they don't have to. Um, but over time you, you just see stuff. So you see the military presence, you see guys with guns running around everywhere. Um, we were in Lubumbashi Zaire, which is more of a city. Um, it's not like the jungle you might think of when you think of Africa, but, um, dirt roads everywhere but busy houses buildings um all the all the good houses had walls and security around them and i went to a school um english speaking school called tess tessal um where my mom would would teach at and bring me as a kid so the only time i was outside of like a protected area was during like the transport from from home to church to school and but yeah, I would I would see things from time to time. Um, the the time that stands out the most to me um, was coming home late at night um, from a friend's house, and my dad was driving, and I think my mom and I were in the back seat, and um, 
so we have a gate around our house or we have a wall with a gate barbed wire um an unarmed guard so he's more like a gate opener and does like chores and stuff and a dog um i guess looking back the dog wasn't very big like i have a huge king corso now um so i'm like i know what a big dog looks like and i'm like nah, my dog probably wasn't going to do much back then other than bark um but coming home late at night our our yard boy opens the gate for us we're, we're pulling in it's dark we have a long narrow driveway and my dad just driving us down the driveway to go park and we hear our yard boy screaming and jumping and trying to get our attention my dad looks back he sees four guys run in with stuff like weapons and rope and stuff to do us harm and probably rob us and who who knows what else so we reverse out of there and my mom is like putting our heads down so we don't get shot or yeah my dad too like my dad wasn't seeing he was like driving with his head down uh reverse out of there and and leave leave the premise and we're like oh man we hope um his, his name was joseph our yard boy hope joseph's okay um they they had to, like going back the next day he was okay he went and hid didn't get hurt but they had told him don't say anything and he did anyway you know so he risked his life um to protect us which is great and got a raise and all that stuff but that that stands out to me um to where you know there's there's four guys who wanted to hurt us or or rob us or whatever and um that stuff like that happens all the time i'm sure what about south africa was that that sound if i've got my dates right was that pretty soon after the fall of apartheid that you got there um yeah so we got to south africa in it was 96 i want to say and um south africa was dangerous in its own way where there's like bad gang violence and um we had these necklaces with like a little panic button i don't know what they do um i think they call some service maybe the police come but we had to wear the, them all the time because there's a heightened sense of um just being in trouble i guess getting into trouble out of nowhere over there and it seemed safe like it seemed more first world culture um but things would go south quickly and the house that we ended up living in come to find out afterwards um the family before us had been killed in that house um and i guess not nowadays you got to disclose stuff like that but um <laughs> yeah we didn't find out until we were already moved in um so the car yeah. facts for the house yeah exactly <laughs> at least in california you got to do i think within four years if somebody died like you got to report that so yeah, yeah i think it's fair but, enough between ghosts and the biohazard between the two yeah <laughs> uh, uh yeah i was just in johannesburg in february but i mean it was around the world like literally deliberately as fast as we could while some of the guys did skydive some of them did marathons but we went to johannesburg and then cape town but that was the beginning of this so we actually got i think it was two days in cape town and it's again we'll, we'll talk about haiti in a little bit it's what i feel with there too beautiful beautiful country it's just it's it's heartbreaking when you see destruction wars etc because i mean these places are absolutely gorgeous and i'm sure you know syria has beautiful places i'm sure you know gaza has beautiful places and now they're reduced to rubble because of you know fucking right. human beings yeah 
Yeah, it's terrible. Um, that's how it goes sometimes, though, I guess. And that's why uh, I guess people like you and me and my family are called to help out and shine a little light on the darkness out there, you know? Absolutely. So you went back to Connecticut. What took you to Haiti? Um. Yeah, so we went to Connecticut. I was there for a couple years. And when I was 12, my parents felt called to go serve again. And um, they had actually done some work in Haiti before I was born um, as as a newlywed couple. So I guess uh, God put it on their heart like, hey, Haiti needs some help. You guys should go help. And we went. And by this point, I had a sister that was seven years younger than me and not and i have one more sister but she wasn't born yet so we're all seven years apart um yeah so we we had a beautiful house in connecticut on eight acres of land there's a lake a river nice house um just a really hard place to leave i had a good um community good friends and at an impressionable 12 years old, like my whole world was just taken away from me to, to move to Haiti, which is the poorest country in, in the Western hemisphere. Um, also going through civil unrest and just a night and day, like the going from a beautiful place to like one of the worst places you can imagine. Um, was devastating to me. So it, it took me a little bit to uh, come to terms with that. Um, and Haiti's, I guess, so dangerous and violent. Um, you're really like exposed to death. Like it, as soon as you, you get off the plane, you can feel it. It's heavy. Um, there's just, there's just something in the air over there. Um, if you're like, in tune to that sort of thing. Um, and e even as a young, younger kid, like I, I could feel that. And then I would start seeing stuff. So you'd hear gun, gunfire. Um, you'd see bodies in the streets. Um, just like a, a, a disregard for life um, from time to time. On the other side of that, Haitians are beautiful people. They're very nice until they aren't you know it's like i have great things to say about the the island of haiti and the people of haiti but there's a lot of bad people there too just like anywhere but it seemed more condensed in haiti um there were the most su uh not suicides um kidnappings per capita uh in the world at the time that i was living there um i think it was a hundred a week in in the city i was living in. and um I had friends kidnapped and it was just very like you'd see crime all the time. Um, and so this um, to dive a little deeper, if you want, um, this made my mind make a choice. Um, I can either be afraid all the time, afraid that I'm going to get killed or kidnapped or whatever. Something bad's going to happen to me or I can not be afraid of that anymore over here and try and live a normal life as much as possible. 
um, knowing that any day I could catch a bullet or something bad could happen to me. Um, so I decided to start living without fear um, as a pretty young teenager. So at this point now I'm 13 or 14 and Haiti became a completely different place for me. Um, I started enjoying it. I started um, adventuring even like in, in you shouldn't, you know, in, in places like this. And um, so I had like, I'd come to terms with the fact that I could die at any, at any point. And it seemed like the healthiest way to think. I don't know if it was, especially as like a, de a developing adolescent. Um, but I also think that that has followed me throughout most of my life now. And I've, I've been able to reflect on that and have less of a fear of some of the things that could be really dangerous or, or could really hurt you. Now, were you in Port-au-Prince or one of the other cities? Yes. Uh, we're based out of Port-au-Prince, which is the capital. And for, for your listeners, I can talk a little bit about like what, what Haiti is. Um, Please, absolutely. Yeah. So Haiti is, um, it's an island that is attached to the Dominican Republic. And together they make up the island of Hispaniola. Um, Haiti's very poor and, and brown on the map and the Dominican is lush and green and you can very clearly, um, see the, the border and the, the divide. Um, that island is 565 miles south of Florida and poorest, poorest country in the Western hemisphere. So a lot of people didn't know about Haiti. Um, when we moved there, we were trying to explain what it was to people and they're like, Oh, Hades, like, no, no, that's something different. <laughs> um, but since the the Haiti earthquake, which happened in 2010, and we can get into that in a little bit, uh, that put Haiti on the map and almost took it off the map. But now people know what Haiti is and kind of where it is and whatnot. So I had a unique experience. I'm actually about to go to Haiti again um, about six weeks from now. Um, but we are going to what the cruise ship comedian referred to as fake Haiti or Jurassic Park. The reason being that I don't know how, but Royal Caribbean, I think is the only one that goes to this. There's a place called Labadee and they basically put, I don't know how many feet of fence, electrified fence around this tiny little peninsula on Haiti. But what is so devastatingly sad is I've traveled a lot of the world. I've cruised quite a bit. I love it. Living in Florida, obviously, it's so easy to, to jump on a ship here. By far the most beautiful island I've ever seen anywhere near us. And so the potential for it to be a beautiful tourist destination with a lot of money coming in is huge. But again, because of people and and I worked with a couple of uh, guys, um, Johnny and Eddie, when I worked in South Beach, if you look down South Beach in Florida, the chairs, umbrellas, everything are all the same company, Boucher Brothers. And I was kind of managing one of the areas and worked with those guys. And they were awesome. And they were from Haiti. And not not too long before I met them, you know, they were in Haiti. But they were talking about Papa Doc and Baby Doc. And again, the, the, the tyranny, you know, a few mm -hmm. people making a huge amount of money while watching their people kill each other and starve to death. So this is what's so sad. And I don't know if, you know, if you have any response to this but it seems to me like the island of haiti itself 
being so close to Florida potentially could make all their money from Americans just jumping on ships and, and going over there and exploring their island and you know respectfully hopefully and but because of the unrest because of the you know the abuse of the people and what's what it's created it's put this this barrier to entry of it actually being able to solve all its problems which would be this tourist commerce but you know until obviously they get control of the violence they're never going to be able to get that tourism so it's this real kind of double-edged sword but the solution is as you said 500 miles away but the the unrest caused from the oppression of its people for years and years and years has resulted in the fact and i asked someone once and they were like only when some sort of military goes in there and helps them stabilize again are the haitian people really going to be able to get back on their feet yeah no i agree with you there's huge potential for haiti to be good you know but it's oh man it, it, it's complicated it's really complicated and i own a nonprofit organization that builds houses in haiti for earthquake survivors and we can talk about that in a bit but um lately i've been having a lot of meetings trying to figure out what else can we do for haiti like how can we fix haiti and it's a super complicated thing and there's hundreds of organizations that have been trying to crack this code for years and years and yeah it's definitely not a simple answer so and on top of that i tried to go to haiti um a couple months back before my my kid was born and I was told you cannot come to Haiti right now. It is way too dangerous. Everything is shut down. Um, people aren't even going to work. Like they'll, they'll be, they'll be killed if they're seen like that sort of thing. And I'm like, Oh man, this is really bad. Like I, yeah, we're, we're like at a standstill with, with Haiti. like at least Labadee is doing good, but um I don't know the, the real Haiti, you know, it's just, it's terrible. It's really, really bad and, and sad and unfortunate. So yeah, I've been trying to figure out what to do with that. And it's a, it's a big, big problem. Yeah. One of the guys I just interviewed about three weeks ago, um, he green beret, I think if I got it right. Um, they were literally on the plane, a plane or helicopter. Um, that was, I think it was a plane because they were literally taxiing towards the runway to go to Haiti for an invasion to stabilize Haiti. This was, you know, I think 30 years ago or something. He was a young, young Green Beret then. And then they literally kind of ground to a halt and they were told the yeah, operations off. So the U.S. was about to go over there a few decades ago and try and stabilize it itself. But obviously that never happened for whatever reason. I know it's a tricky thing to go into someone else's country and say we're here to fix everything. But um. Yeah, I mean, while while we're you know we'll get just to the death toll from the earthquake alone, but I mean, I wonder what the death toll is just from all the the violence as well. I mean, so close to us has got to be something that we can do in 2023 if we're responding to all these places a lot lot further away from us, you know, and we're ignoring the Haitians that are on our shores. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things you gotta like. Hopefully, like maybe technology helps improve our abilities to help, you know, with uh the starlink and whatever you know just i don't know but yeah I, i've been thinking a lot about it lately and trying to figure out how to create jobs for haitians um how to just make it a little bit better you know and not one person or one organization is going to fix everything but 
I think when enough people get involved, um, that's when you start to see those changes. Absolutely. Well, I know you spent a few years in Haiti. What brought you back to the U.S. then? So while we were in Haiti, there was a president named Aristide, and he was a bad guy. Um, not as bad as Papa Doc, maybe Doc, but another just bad leader who's taking advantage of his position. Um, and it got to the point where he was ousted and the government was overthrown. There was civil unrest, like, like there always is. And, um, he had to leave the country. I think he went, I think he went to Africa somewhere. Um, but in the meantime, he was supplying gangs with like money and weapons and, um, having them hurt Haiti, um, and just make Haiti an even worse place. Cause he was angry. Um, and so it got really bad, even worse for all of us that were still living in Haiti. Um, so we had to evacuate Haiti and I was 15 now at this point. Um, there were roadblocks everywhere, burning tires. Haiti is mountainous down to the ocean so you can if you're up high you can kind of see a lot of what's going on so you'd see pillars of dark dark smoke going off as they're um, setting tires on fire and creating roadblocks so you couldn't get through um, everybody had weapons out um, in the street it looked bad they'd make um, they'd make roadblocks even out of like dead bodies and stuff to try and keep you from getting where you wanted to be. So yeah, we had to leave, um, got out of there, ended up in, um, California, actually. Uh, it was supposed to be a quick, Hey, let's go to California while things cool off in Haiti. And then we'll go back. So like a six month thing, um, was what we speculated. And we ended up in Monrovia, which has a world vision headquarters. And they decided to use my dad, as part of a new world vision project um, in the meantime. So six months turned into two years and we stayed in California longer than expected. At this point, I am like almost an adult starting to decide what to do with my life. Um, pretty soon after getting to California, I knew I wanted to be a firefighter. Like people, at that age, people were asking you, Oh, what do you, what do you want to do? Um, firefighting was along the same lines as helping as a missionary. Um, you're, yeah, it's very similar. Um, you're helping people on their worst day and you're able to, you know, be light in the darkness and continue to just be a good person in, in, in um, in these scenarios. So I went to my local fire department and I asked about how do, how do I become a firefighter? And they said they had an explorer program. And for listeners who don't know what that is, that's a kid that can go and train with the fire department um, to see if it's what they really want to do. They get exposure to the training, the firehouse culture. Um, they eventually go through a little fire academy so that they can start staying the night and going on calls and doing ride-alongs. So I did all that. Um, I, I went and I was... Yeah, pretty much as soon as I got to California, I was like 15 and a half and they allowed me to start training and I was a mess at first. I had 
my hair was long and I had bracelets and necklaces and I was, you know, straight out of Haiti. So they had to square me away a little bit. Um, but you wear a uniform and you shine your boots and you just learn all the, the proper etiquette um, of the fire service. So I was doing that um, for, I did that as long as possible. But when I turned 18, my family was like, all right, we're ready to go back to Haiti. And I was like, cool, I want to stay here. Like I'm established again and I'm 18, like I'm an adult. So um, they ended up leaving me to go back to Haiti without me. And I stayed here and to pay the bills, I was I started working construction. So I, I got involved with a couple different construction crews um, and eventually ended up as a carpenter, uh, specifically doing finished carpentry as a door door and lock installer um and that'll come into play with some other things here later but um yeah i was doing that to pay the bills and uh doing the explorer program doing my fire science classes started going to college um getting all that stuff knocked out became an emt did uh did part-time emt did the state fire academy through a school out here called Mount SAC, Mount San Antonio College. And then once I got that, I was able to start applying for small departments locally out here. A lot of big departments have their own academy, but the small ones just ask that you have a state academy. Um, so I was able to get hired with a volunteer fire department out here. And there's only two of them in the LA area. Um, so when I got hired with, it was called Sierra Madre Fire Department, um, single station in a small city. But they would run with LA County, which is the department I'd been training with. They used all these same equipment as LA County. So it felt like a really good stepping stone for the department I wanted to be working for. Um, meanwhile, hustling, trying to survive in LA and trying to pay the bills, um, super busy, young adult. Um, and not long after my family moved back to Haiti, um, I decided I should probably go visit them. I hadn't been back to Haiti in five years. Um, and I had set up an opportunity to where I could help the United Nations with a new fire program. So this was going to be like a good way to visit my family, to kind of build my resume a little bit, to be back in Haiti. And I had planned to go to Haiti for about a month and just do that for a little bit. Um, so this was in early January of 2010. I got to Haiti a few days before the Haiti earthquake, um, just out of happenstance. And I think it was definitely for a reason, looking at the big picture. Um, but I was in Haiti a couple of days before this big earthquake hit. And um, I was supposed to do an interview with the United Nations the day of the earthquake um, during the time of the earthquake, unbeknownst to anybody. Um, the day before, I realized I was kind of wasting my time not doing this interview as soon as possible because I'm only in Haiti for a limited amount of time. I want to be able to be a valuable asset um, and and teach and train um, the the people that I was there to help. So I called the UN. I was like, Hey, do you mind if I come in early and do this interview? I just want to get it out of the way and hopefully get to work sooner. 
they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Come on down. So did the interview the day before the earthquake now. Um, and had I had been in that building during the time of the earthquake as planned, I most certainly would have died. Um, that building completely collapsed. It's called the Christoph building. Um, 300 people died and everybody died that was in that building. Um, so dodged a bullet there. And that's something that, um, it doesn't haunt me, but I'm, I'm great. You know, it's like, I got a second chance. Um, and, and we can talk about that in a little bit, but, um, to talk about the, the earthquake, if, if you want me to dive into that. Um, yeah, absolutely. The reason why I remember that so clearly, I was working for Orange County Fire in the Orlando area by that point. And when we're in school in England, we don't learn Spanish, we learn French. So I spoke, you know, I speak basic French. I wouldn't say I'm even close to fluent, but a lot of times in Orlando, there's a lot of Haitian communities, you know, people would be like, these Haitian men and women would be like blown away because this pasty English dude started speaking French to them, not Creole, but French. Yeah. Um, so when the earthquake happened, I proactively reached out to our chiefs like, hey, are we sending anyone? You know, I know there's, there's USAR teams, but it's devastated there. It's on our shores. Um, and they, I mean, basically they dragged their fucking heels, what they did. They finally, a few days later, put out a kind of, you know, questionnaire almost. Okay, who would be interested if we did? Do you speak French? I signed up straight away. And then it was very strange because we were pulling USAR teams back out when they were still finding people alive in there. So I'll, I'll kind of get your perspective on that. So not only had I been aware of, of Haiti and Haitian people, you know, years prior working with the two lads, but now, you know, really did try and get out there. And I just had uh, Timmy Gleason on the show, who's uh, Florida Task Force 2, who was one of the people that responded. So walk me through, it was January 12th, 2010. So walk me through the events prior, if you want to put some kind of observations of building construction prior to it, and then we'll walk through not only the the tragedy of all the Haitian people, but obviously the the near miss for your own family as well. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh before the earthquake happened, I was visiting different places in town and I actually was paying attention to the building construction um, at this point now being a carpenter and uh, fire training. And we pay attention to those sorts of things. We're living in Haiti before I, I did not, um, not really at all. And I was like looking around, I'm like, oh man, like I don't even feel safe in this building. Um, and the way that these houses are built is unreinforced concrete. Um, so like no rebar or very, very minimal rebar. And these houses are not up to any code whatsoever. They're just slapped together as cheaply as possible because nobody has money. And then they're like built on top of each other up the mountain. So it's just a domino effect if anything were to happen to any of, you know, the, those structures. Um, so they're just barely hanging on as it is. And Haiti had never experienced a significant earthquake in, in recent times, at least. Um, so that's, that was never a concern. It's always like hurricanes and, and flooding and disease. Like that's the things you, you worry about when you go to Haiti and, and crime. But um, yeah, nobody's thinking about an earthquake. And um, another reason I did that interview a day early is my our plans got canceled um the day before and we're supposed to get on a boat and and go to like one of the beaches and stuff and the waves were like really bad and like uncharacteristically 
large that day. And to the point where like, it wasn't safe to go out in a boat and that never happens. So something weird was already like brewing, you know, in the environment somehow. Um, and I haven't looked into that, but I just, yeah, that was my observation. And, um, the day of the earthquake, I was down in, in the town in, in Port-au-Prince at an orphanage and I was, my, my family wasn't with me. I had some friends with me, but we were helping out at this orphanage. There's 110 kids and I was on the second floor on the balcony when the earthquake started. And initially, um, I didn't, I don't even have like a good earthquake radar, even living in California. Like I hadn't been in anything real significant either. And so it starts rumbling, like the ground starts shaking, but that happens in Haiti when like big Mac trucks drive by and and stuff like that. So, um, that's what I, that was my initial thought, like, Oh, big trucks coming. And then it gets worse. And it starts sh- shaking even more. And there's actually an American paramedic who, who she owns this orphanage with her husband. Um, and she's like retired older than me, but more experienced. And she knew it was an earthquake. So she yells earthquake. And I'm like, Oh shoot earthquake. Okay. Okay. What do I do? Like, so I, I stayed where I was and um, I'm like, there's kids everywhere that but like, we got to keep these kids safe. The floor that I'm on, is all special needs kids why they're on the second floor instead of the first i don't know but they're up there and i just decided like i'm gonna hang on and i'm gonna try and keep my body in the safest place like feel this out you know i don't know how long it's gonna go on for all these thoughts are going through my mind in like a half second right um so i look over the balcony i see a pickup truck down below I was like, okay, if I have to, if this building starts collapsing, I'm going to jump on that truck. It'll, it'll break my fall a little bit. It's got rubber tires and shocks and I think I'll be okay. Meanwhile, other houses are coming down. Like we, we, we start to see like housing collapse, collapse, dust. It's loud. It's violent. People are screaming now. Um, and the earthquake went on for 39 seconds, which seems like an eternity, you know, after five seconds, it's not fun anymore. And all the, the last five minutes of me telling you about what was going through my head that happened in the first like two seconds. Um, so that seems like it's going on forever. And this was a 7.0 earthquake and it, it was almost dusk. So this was happening around, I I think maybe close to four o'clock. Um, so it was towards the end of the day. Anyway, the earthquake stops our building had not collapsed. There's cracks all over the walls. Everything that could fall down had fallen down, uh, including most of the kids. And I was like, all right, we got to get everybody out, start picking up um, all the special needs kids. And these kids are like, like severely handicapped. Like um, you don't even see this in the States, but are you familiar with hydrocephalus? Yes. Um, it's like the enlarged heads and stuff like that. Really weird to see because it's something that we can like address early on in in first world first world countries. But in Haiti, um, it gets bad because the these kids' heads just grow as like there's buildup in the fluid, I think, in in the heads and stuff. So there's a lot a lot of kids like this, and we're so we're carrying these kids down, 
and um and trying to get them like in safe areas and then there's kids who can't walk and so that was our first priority just getting all the kids out and out of a collapse zone because the house could still fall and we were surrounded by a wall that could still fall um and before long we, we started getting these aftershocks and these aftershocks were like 5.0 so they're still significant as well and they would bring down the buildings that were barely hanging on after the 7.0 had like messed them up you know um and the, there were hundreds of aftershocks over the next couple of weeks so we stayed sitting on the ground in a collapse free zone as safe as possible um and just and just waited like we didn't know how bad it was at that point um i didn't know where my family was N- none of the cell phones were working there's probably a million people trying to make phone calls and text messages on top of all the like repeater towers having fallen down. Um, So yeah, communication was like out the window. I knew my dad knew where I was. So I waited, I waited for him. I'm like, hopefully he, he shows up and comes and gets me, you know, cause I don't want to like just start wandering. Like I wanted to go help, but at the same time, 110 scared kids with knees, like, I'm like, okay, they need me here to to help out with everything that's going on. But the like EMT and the firefighter inside of me was like, I got to go pull people out. You know, I got to go like time is of the essence. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a right thing for me to just leave the scenario I was in and go out in the dark with like no tools or knowledge of what really had happened. Um, and at this point, nobody knew the severity of the earthquake. Like, America didn't know, Haiti didn't know, we just had all experienced it um, at that point. Um, and I think to throw some figures out there, um, and they, they've they changed, so I don't think anybody really knows like how many people died, but 300,000 w- w- was the common number, um, 300,000 people died uh, during the earthquake, which is largest disaster, natural disaster in modern history, like even the tsunamis and stuff didn't kill that many people. Well, it's um, a small population too, isn't it? So percentage-wise, it has to be definitely the, the worst tragedy of any country for that small yeah. like half of an island to lose 300,000 people. Yeah, so there's 7 million people in the island of uh, Haiti. And I think um, most of those people, at least half of those people are, are in the capital or the capital and the surrounding cities. Um, on top of that, a million more people were injured and left homeless. So everybody was impacted. Everybody knew somebody that died. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But I uh, eventually my dad showed up and he had like this look of devastation on his face. He pulls me aside. He's like, hey, Trevor, I need to talk to you. Um he he said uh he went back to the apartment that my my mom and my two sisters were at and it had completely pancaked down completely collapsed it was five stories they lived on the bottom floor on the edge of a mountain and he's he told me like there there's no survivors um he didn't tell me they're dead but he just he told me what he saw and like that it did not look good and i was like it 
obviously caught me by surprise. Um, in my head earlier, I'd kind of been joking, like, uh, hope everybody's okay. You know, like I didn't know the severity of, of what truly had, had happened. And, um, so I, I refused to believe initially that they had died. And I went, I went with my dad, he had a vehicle and we slowly made our way up the mountain and you're, you're already like off-roading before the, before the earthquake, the roads are just bad in general. A lot of dirt roads, a lot of potholes. Um, now there's walls collapsed everywhere. There's dead bodies because people will find somebody and drag them out into the street and because they're dead. Um, if they're alive, they're trying to get treatment. Um, but there's lots of obstacles. So we made our way up the mountain, but very slowly to my dad's pastor's house and up in the mountains, it's safer. Um, they were less impacted by the earthquake. So I don't think any of the houses up in the mountains for one, they're like high up in the mountains, but one, they're better built. Um, and they're owned by people with the, the money to have a nice house that can be better built. So we stayed up there and I obviously could not sleep. I'm thinking about my family. Um, anytime I start to doze off another aftershock hits and wakes me up. And we're also all thinking like, was the 7.0 the worst earthquake or was that like a preliminary one for like another even bigger one? Or are we going to get another 7.0 or like nobody knew what was going to happen? So that was scary. Um, but all night long, I'm thinking we got to get my family. We got to go, we got to go find them. Like what if one of them is still alive? You know, like I'm, I hope they're all still alive. <laughs> So I'm thinking like, all right, we need supplies, we need water, shovels, maybe body bags for other people that we might find, you know, and like just trying to stay hopeful and trying to keep my mind like focused on, on like the right things. And as soon as the sun started to rise, I was up and I'm like, all right, come on, dad, we got to get down the mountain. We got to go, go dig, you know, we got to do something. And he's like, he's a very wise guy, like, like smart, smart man, calculated at this point, he's the director of World Vision Haiti. Um, so he's in he's in charge of all of World Vision. And um, he's like, no, Trevor, we got to eat. We're going to need our strength today. And I was like, okay, all right, you're right. So I'm like, I'm like trying to force down a little bit of food. Um, and then while we're eating, my dad starts talking about funeral plans for, for the family. And that's when it like just crushed me. I'm like, oh, man, he really believes that that they're dead. And I had to like excuse myself from the table. I got up, I walked over to this balcony that was overlooking all of Haiti. And I realized I hadn't seen Haiti in the daylight yet, especially not from that vantage point up in the mountains. And it's it was such a vivid memory in my mind, um, seeing Haiti for the first time after the earthquake, where it was just total de devastation like the sun is coming up so you're getting like this dark red sun like piercing through like there's fire everywhere um i guess the the collapse like caused a bunch of fires so you'll see like smoke headers sun piercing through there's still like a haze of dust in the air from all the collapses and then you can hear wailing like just people are are just so um distraught and 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 crying and patients are very emotional people but i think anybody would be in that scenario um but they're very 
very vocal and singing and you, you'd hear singing too. Um, but a lot of, a lot of crying and sobbing and yeah, that's when it hit me like in my soul where I was like, oh my gosh, like this, this is crazy. Like the whole, um, the whole Island just got devastated and it's a lot bigger than I thought it was. And we still didn't have numbers. Um, but that's when I started to cry like that. I'd, I'd been like holding back, um, trying to be strong for my family and stuff. And then that's when it got me. They're about to get me right now too. Um, anyway. Yeah. So at that point, um, we, uh, not, not soon after that, we started heading down the, uh, the mountain and, uh, I remember seeing people like just covered in debris walking up the mountain with like a suitcase and then other people bloody or whatever, holding clothes, walking down the mountain. Like people didn't know where to go or what to do. And, um, but I, there was like a, a common ground, even though I was like American and different, um, from, from the Haitians, like we all shared this similar experience. Um, so at that point we were, we're brothers, brothers and sisters in, in this big, uh, big event. Excuse me one sec. <laughs> no worries, brother. Um, it does. Yeah. It doesn't always hit me, but, uh, this time it is. So. Well, good. I mean, this is a natural emotional response to especially, I mean, so many of us have emotional responses to, something seemingly far less acute but i mean you're talking about absolute devastation near death you know you think you've lost your family at that point you're watching you know obviously the aftermath of hundreds of thousands of people losing their lives and homes you know it's a pretty significant event that i'm sure is gonna you know raise emotions till the day you leave this planet uh yeah okay here we go all right next part <laughs> Uh, this isn't even the most emotional part. Um, so at this point, I, uh, I don't know if my family's alive or not. And our plan is to go to my dad's office, the world vision headquarters and grab some supplies so that we can go dig. And, um, to share about my family a little bit, my mom is in her late forties at this point, my sister is 14 and my youngest sister is seven six or seven years old so very young um so we get to my dad's office and we we go in the front gate and we park and we get out and i start like it's game time like i start looking for stuff i can grab the shovels and water and stuff and somebody yells, hey, your family's here. And it didn't really register with me at first. And um, they, uh, my family had made it. Um, they, uh, they had been dropped off on the, in the back gate. And um, they were all alive. Dang it, it's getting me. <laughs> Oh man. All right. So, uh, yeah, they were all alive and they were covered, covered in debris and, uh, holding each other, helping each other walk. 
and my mom was barefoot. My youngest sister was barefoot. And um, my youngest sister was being held by my other sister who had only one with shoes on, the 14-year-old. The youngest one couldn't see. She had debris that she had caught all in her eyes and stuff. But um, they were all alive, and we we ran to each other and, and hugged and held each other. And uh, it was beautiful. Um, yeah. Going from uh, thinking that you lost everything to getting it back. Um, yeah. Very, very strong. Very strong memory in, in my life. Probably probably one of the strongest ones. Um, but uh, yeah, they made it. So um, their story is incredible. They had just gotten home from school. And they were all together in the same room talking about their day. And this doesn't normally happen. They usually split up once they get home. And uh, they, yeah, they, they were all together when the earthquake started. And they could hear it, like, coming down. Pancake, pancake, super loud. And the wall broke open next to where they were standing. And they jumped out. And they're on the side of a mountain. So... They're tumbling down the mountain. Um, the house is tumbling behind them. Uh, they spent the night in a tree. Immediately after the earthquake, looting started. Um, prisons broke open. Bad people escaped. Um, just like opportunists, right? Like you, you, you start robbing right away if you can. Um, and also a very dangerous place in general for three women, you know, on their own. So, yeah, they spent the night in a tree, and I'm sure they didn't sleep very well up there, but they, they, they were up there all night. And then the next day, um, they caught a ride and got dropped off at my dad's office. So, yeah, they definitely shouldn't be alive um, at all. Like, yeah, they're, they're a miracle story for sure. Um, but we had to get them evacuated out, uh, get some medical attention for my mom. Uh, especially she seemed the most beat up and the the my youngest sister with the eye issues that was like a temporary thing so eventually she was able to get all that debris out and see so she's okay um and everybody's okay now like in full retrospect um big picture everybody's okay um but we got my family to the the u.s embassy and um it, it took a while Cause we had to navigate all the like down power lines and um, yeah, just figure out how to get there. And the air, what was it the air force? Yeah. The air force evacuated out um, like injured Americans. So my whole family had the opportunity to get on a air force plane and leave the country. Um, right. As we were boarding, I told my dad, I need to stay in Haiti. Um, I'm, I'm an asset here. Like I know the the country. I know the language enough to get around. I'm an EMT. I'm fire training. I know some search and rescue. This is the perfect place for me. The family's okay. They're in good hands. They're in your hands. They're going back to the US. I need to stay. And my dad said, You're right. Here's the keys to the car. <laughs> no discussion. <laughs> So <laughs> you're waiting for him to say no come with us <laughs> yeah and i was like all right cool <laughs> i'm gonna stay then um because yeah he definitely could have convinced me to 
come with them. But no, he knew it. He knew it was the right thing. So then I was on my own in Haiti. And um, I spent the night at the U.S. Embassy by myself um, on the ground. And everybody had to leave their backpacks and their their suitcases. They're like, no, you can't take anything. Just leave your luggage and get on the plane. So, and everybody was like, yeah, go, you know, take what you need for my stuff because they knew I was staying. So I went through some bags. I made my own bag, some food and some clothes and stuff. And I woke up to somebody like dragging my bag away from me. And I I got up, I went, I grabbed my bag back and I wore it backwards and like on, and I slept on top of it. So I didn't get robbed again. Um, but I was tired. Like I, I, I did sleep. I got up the next morning, took my dad's car to the world vision headquarters where I knew some people. And I was like, Hey, um, I'm, I'm here to stay in Haiti for, I don't know how long, but I'm here to help. And they're like, Oh, you're, uh, Frank Williams is my dad. He's like, oh, Frank Williams' son. So they think I'm like as good as him at everything. And that's like not the case at all. I'm 19 years old at this point. But they put me in charge of a food distribution. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's go. Uh, let's go hand out some food. And we had these trucks. We went into the city. We start handing out food and supplies. And before long, like within minutes, we're just getting mobbed. Like people were like shaking the car, jumping on top of it, jumping into it, trying to get the driver out. And I was like, oh, we got to go. We got to go. So we took off. That like could have been really bad. Um, People die in those scenarios all the time. So we didn't hand out even 10% of what we intended to hand out. And it was also like really dangerous and scary. So we get back to World Vision and I was like, okay change of plans we need we need security we need an entrance and an exit we need like an easy escape that's not blocked off and we'll go do this in like a big soccer field where there's lots of space so we try again same thing happens um and yeah so we we dive in the the truck and take off and i'm like all right this isn't working like people aren't going to get their food um so I stuck around World Vision a little bit longer, but before long, I met a search and rescue team. And I was like, all right, this is this is what I want to be doing. Like, this is more up my alley. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention, when I was at the U.S. Embassy, um, L.A. County's Task Force 2 arrived. And um, they're like an international search and rescue team. I was very familiar with them because I've been training to be a part of LA County for years. At this point, I'm not hired on by LA County. Um, I am now, but um, their search and rescue team was like something like that would be like a dream once getting hired to be part of this like elite team one day, like specialized traveling around the world. Very cool thing to be a part of. And I was wearing a county t-shirt and a county hat. Every, every all my other belongings had been lost in the apartment collapse um so i just had the shirt on my back and it just so happened to be county so task force two shows up and they see this kid wearing like county stuff in haiti and they're like who the heck so they come over and talk to me and i'm like hey i'm gonna explore <laughs> i'm gonna explore uh, I, I told him my story a little bit and I was like, can I help? Can I like travel with your team? And they're like, no, nah, kid, sorry. You know, 
uh, who are, you know, FEMA and AFTA and all these like regulating uh, entities are in charge of us. So there's no leeway. So I was bummed. I was like, oh man, all right, well, one day I'm going to get hired and one day I'm going to be on that team. And um, that I did eventually get on that team once, once getting hired. Um, so that was a cool full circle thing um, eventually. But for the time being, I was still like, like bitter about not getting to go with the big county team, but a smaller team I got to meet allowed me to go with them. And again, like my contribution was, I know the country, I know the language, like I, I can help out a little bit, you know, that and I was here when it weird. happened. So I just to jump in a second, but at that point, you know, it's such, such devastation. You think there was a little leniency to bend some rules. I mean, what, what an asset. You know, yeah. you have this this understanding, you understand the organization that you're trying to attach yourself to, you speak the language, you've lived there, you know, I mean, that. I know that seems like a poor leadership decision to not bring you along the first time, to be honest. Yeah, there's like good local knowledge. And that's something we look for now, now that I'm on the team. Like, I know that that's a valuable thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, it didn't happen for whatever reason. And got to work with a smaller one. And it was like, I think there was like six or seven people of like elite. You got your your Navy SEAL and your Green Beret and your pilot and your cadaver dog and your security and your team leader and your paramedic. And then there was me. And um, we went around and we just pulled body parts out like we, we didn't find anybody viable, even though there were there's plenty. We just didn't know where to look. Um, we didn't have the equipment that the big teams had. And I think L.A. County ended up getting quite a few saves over the course of those couple weeks that they were there. Um, but we didn't. And um, it was it wasn't like a, that part wasn't hard for me. The the part that was hard was that the families are there, like they're they're with you, like wanting you to save, you know, their family member. And it's kind of like you're you're a paramedic. It's kind of like when you're doing CPR and the family's there and they're just rooting for you, you know, hoping that you save their their loved one. And you can't all the time, you know, you do your best, but you can't. So I think, um, yeah, that that was the, the hard part at, at that point in my life, just hear, hearing like the family members crying and like, please, you know, begging you to do your best and not being able to. Um so, yeah, I did that for a little bit. Um, and this is when I started noticing, like, maybe, like, some early signs of PTSD for myself. Um, I was having trouble sleeping, and I would wake up, like, violently hitting stuff, like, flailing my arms. Um, loud noises were starting to become an issue. So yeah i started picking up on some of that stuff um and yeah that well i'll talk a little bit more about haiti and then we can talk about that um so i was in haiti a uh, couple weeks after the earthquake happened like i stayed for a couple weeks longer and i did the search and rescue team and then once they left we had been back and forth to the airport a lot so Just starting... to jump in again, because like, my observation was trying to get out there and they were already sending people back. And yet you'd see on the news, they were finding more and more and more people. 
you know, to me, it almost seemed like, all right, rotate the teams then, you know, do a pass on, let some of the other teams try and do some more work, but also get experience so they can bring back to the US and apply to the next Oklahoma bombing or, you know, whatever it is. But it was, you know, they just pulled them seemingly really, really soon. You've obviously got a very unique perspective, unbiased. What was through your eyes? Did it seem premature being member of a team now, years later? Yeah, it did. It definitely did. Um, Because I felt like I was there longer than anybody. And yeah, it seems like people would come in for a week and then leave. And then I, I think with like the military, they were there longer. Um, so I mean, not all of them, but at the airport is where everything was getting set up. That was like the base of operations, um, for every country that sent a military or a relief team. And it, it was pretty massive. Like, um, after a couple of weeks, there's like flags from like all different countries, um, flying like over their base and there were, mash um uh, hospitals set up at the airport like three giant circus tents of um emergency hospitals so there's a lot going on at the airport and nothing commercial but military planes would would land and some private charters would come in but they didn't have a good reason the airport was kind of messed up i think so it was dangerous to land and I ended up making friends with some helicopter pilots from Utah. And they were there. They're independently wealthy. Just they're on their own dime. Flew in three helicopters and just wanted to help. And I was like, cool. Let me go pitch myself to them and see if they'll take me along because helicopters sound fun. Um, so I did. Told them my story. I was like, yeah, I've been here for a couple of weeks now. I was here when the earthquake happened can I help you guys? Like, they're like, yeah, we're just trying to do the best good we can with like our helicopters. So the big issue was food wasn't getting out. Food and water was not getting out. Was, as I explained earlier with the riots and trying to distribute food, it's too dangerous. And so the answer to that problem were these helicopters. And we go, Oh, and there was just tons and tons and tons of food getting dropped off by all these different aid countries. Like China would come in, dump, dump a bunch of food, and then Russia Russia or whoever, they'd all be just big plane lands, offloads food, takes off. So we go find that food and just take it. Like it wasn't being protected very, very well. So we essentially just go steal it, load up these helicopters and fly all over Haiti and drop the food out and do it again all day long. So I was getting tons of helicopter hours, like getting to right in the back and having the time of my life. It felt like we were being the most effective as far as getting people fed. And in early on, we were landing the helicopters, getting out, offloading really quick, and then getting back in and taking off. That started to backfire on us when people started trying to jump in the helicopter. Um, the same as earlier on in my story trying to jump in the trucks so and that's way more dangerous in a helicopter like at one point i had to jump into the helicopter as it was taking off um felt like rambo and this is after like ripping open a um 
a 50 pound bag of beans with like a Rambo knife, you know, like, so I'm running knife in hand, jump in the helicopter. It was cool. Um, so just having the time of my life and feeling like I'm doing really good work at the same time. So we changed our approach and then we'd start hovering and dumping the food out so that they couldn't get to us, but we could get the food to them. Sometimes we'd even hover over like a river and start like throwing canned goods in the river. It would disperse. People would come out of the woodwork and just start loading up and people were getting fed. So we did that for a while. I was really cool. We would um, sleep in the Dominican at night and they had rented out a baseball field. So they hired security to watch the field, land the helicopters, we'd sleep there at night, we'd be safer, and then we'd fly to Haiti the next day, all day long. Um, So really cool work. Once they left, I went to one of the hospitals and I was like, hey, can I help? uh, I'm an EMT. I just got my national registry card. I I was a very new EMT. I just passed all the, the nationals. And I had actually gone back to the collapsed apartment where my family had been living to see if I could find at least my wallet. And somebody had looted already and they had found my wallet, took out the money, but like left the wallet. So the wallet was like in the opening and they had risked, you would have had to like go way deep in there to like try and find it. They had risked way more than I would want to risk to go get my wallet, but got my wallet. It was all beat up. Lots of rocks and stuff had landed on it pulled out my national registry card with like dents in it and stuff and i was able to present that to these hospitals and they're like they actually looked it up and stuff and then they're like all right you're a doctor you know go go help and um (laughs) so i was able to like get to participate in things that i would never get to do um under my scope in in the u.s but now we're in like emergency medicine like for real like it's like a jungle wild west stuff um so there's people still getting pulled out of the rubble that are alive at this point um lots of amputations lots of surgeries and then still lots of violence like i had mentioned earlier like the prisons broke open so there's people getting killed there's people getting shot um so like we're getting gunshot wounds too so i'm getting help with this stuff i'm getting help with with the leg amputations and at one point we took a little kid's eye out because his other eye was going to go blind if we didn't take that one out for some reason and starting ivs and pushing drugs all that stuff i i got to learn how to do um so that was really valuable for me and in those settings nobody would tell you to stop like like nobody would tell you to go take a break or anything like that it was just a non-stop 24 7 around the clock as much as you could handle and as much as you could do, you did. And then you go take a nap on the cot, eat an MRE, get back at it. Um, so people were getting burnt out quick. And I could see the quick turnarounds at the hospitals, like new doctors and nurses and medics would come in almost every day. And then the old ones would leave. And I was there about a week. And it seemed like after that week, I had the most seniority. And I was in charge of my own little um orthopedic tent of patients and i would like check all their ivs and make sure they were good and get them fed um and then i felt like i was getting burnt out too so i'm like all right cool uh, that was i felt like i helped a lot i learned a lot but i need to like move on to the next thing and i did one more thing before i left haiti and that was get i got involved with uh rubble 
removal team and they were um getting clean water like they were digging up wells so a, a lot of wells got covered up so people weren't getting access to water so we'd go and get the get the rubble out and by hand and give these villages like their clean water again so got to do that and then um after yeah after a couple weeks i was like you know what i think i should go home now like there's there's always gonna be work work to be done but i felt in my heart that it was time so i lost my passport in the collapse i didn't have any money i didn't have a phone like I, i had no way of getting home practically but i would just trust in my heart and my gut and I went to the airport and people were telling me like, Oh, there's no way you're going to get out. Like people have been trying to leave the country, you know, for weeks. They're like camped out on the tarmac right now. I was like, I know, but I'm just going to see what, what happens. So I'm, I was like, all right, I'm just going to walk. So I walked in, walked past security, didn't get stopped. Just kept walking, walking all the way through the whole airport till I got to the tarmac. Didn't get stopped the whole time. Got out on the tarmac, there, there were tons of people just like in their tents and with their luggage and sleeping bags. And they'd been living out there trying to get home. And there are planes coming and going and like little private charters and stuff. But how do you get on one of those? You know, that's the big question. And within 20 minutes, somebody approached me and they told me, hey, we have one extra seat on our plane. Do you want it? And I was like, well, yeah, but... Uh, I mean, I don't have any money. Um, they're like, no, it's okay. You can, you don't have to pay. We just, we've, we felt like we should come talk to you. I'm like, yes, yes. I want that seat on that plane. So within like half an hour of getting to the airport, I was on an airplane. That's quicker than now. You have to go through TSA. Yeah, it's quicker and than now. And- way quicker than now. <laughs> so I, I wish that happened every time. Um, but it was a small, a very small plane. So it takes off. It takes us to, what was it Bahamas? I think is one of the islands on the way back to the States. So, uh, takes us to Bahamas, refuels, and then lands in Florida. I have no idea what even city we're in. Uh, no phone, no, no way to like do anything. Um, oh, and as we got off the plane, they're checking people's passports mm-hmm. and, and customs and stuff like that. And I don't have any of that stuff. One sec. <clears throat> but I'm like, well, I got this far. I'm just going to one foot in front of the next and see what happens. I was last in line intentionally. I didn't want to hold up the line if there's an issue. And um, they didn't ask me for anything. And I just I just walked past them. Really? Yeah. So there's obviously like a, a path being paved for me yeah. um, to get home. And I get out of the airport, it's starting to rain, it's nighttime, and um, I look around, I see somebody with a phone, and I ask if I could use their phone. They said yes, and uh, I called my dad, I was like, hey, I'm alive, I made it back to the States, I'm in Florida somewhere, Um, can you get me home? And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll order you a ticket, and... I, I don't think I went and saw them. They were in Connecticut. Um, I think I just went back to California. And uh, yeah. So the next day, 
um he's like you need to get to this airport i forget which one it was but he's like you need to get to this airport and i was like okay and there's like a bus loading up so i get on the bus i don't even know where it's going and it, it turns out it's going the right direction an hour to um where this other airport is so i get close to that airport that night at that point i'd made some friends on the bus and they're like oh you can like sleep on my hotel room floor tonight if you want so i did that the next morning i'd take a free shuttle to the airport give them my tickets get on the plane get back to california like with no money it was crazy no money no id um so yeah so i made it back to california and that's when i started um my nonprofit organization i felt like i, I should continue to like it like i knew i got a second chance in my heart i wanted to continue helping haiti so i started it, it's called firm foundation it's it's spelled uh, f-i-r-m-e and it means strong or solid in the creole language um, so firm foundation and the mission was to build houses for earthquake survivors and we built 39 houses uh so far at this point but it's been um slowed down a lot just because it's so dangerous right now in haiti to be able to do anything but that's how i was continuing to help out and would love to go back soon but i can't <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully hopefully something pivotal will happen i think i saw somewhere that one of the african nations was thinking of sending troops to try and stabilize it and i'm assuming it was probably one of the french you know colonies in africa but uh, i'm not sure i just remember seeing a, a headline well, firstly, I mean, that's the most comprehensive story of that event that I've heard yet. I've had people that were there, you saw members, I've had a nurse, military nurse who was on a ship off the island of Haiti, and they could only have, you know, the who they were brought. Mercy ship, I think, was yes. out there. Yeah, I think it was. Um, so, but to have that perspective, and then obviously you end up being in that exact, you saw role yourself years later is incredibly powerful. I want to walk through your fire service story next so we can get to to the tools um but before we do so many traumas at this point how did you and your family how were you able to process these traumas and then talk to me about your faith as well because obviously you know your missionaries there's a deep rooted faith but a lot of times when there's horrors and things you know it must cause that faith to be questioned you know god how could you let this happen so kind of walk me through the emotional and spiritual journey from 2010 through to today okay yeah those are those are good questions um whenever my family would say like hey we're thinking about moving to africa or haiti or there's other countries that were considered um i always trusted god like god's going to take care of us um he's never let us down and yeah these are super dangerous countries sometimes and our friends and family usually didn't improve especially bringing like kids to these places um but in my heart i was like no god's gonna take care of us if he wants us to go there and and that's why i didn't believe when my dad told me like nobody's alive in, in the apartments i couldn't believe that god would let something happen to my family when he called them to be there i was like no there's just there's just no way um, and so the point where it's, it really seemed like they had died that rocked my faith a little bit and I didn't understand. And, um, and it was, it was just for a brief moment, but it was like, it was almost like my theology unraveled for a sec. 
And, um, but come to find out he did take care of them. So that like that made it even stronger, re- reinforced it. Like you just, God's like, you, you needed to trust me, you know? And, um, so yeah, that's the, I guess the spiritual aspect of it. And if you're listening to this, uh, podcast from like, uh, spiritual, like if you have a faith that you believe in and stuff, um, you can pretty clearly see like God had his hand in this journey that I went through and that my family went through. Um, if you're not religious, it just seems like an incredible story. Um, maybe un- unbelievable, but, uh, yeah, it happened and it, it I don't think it would have happened without, without God's hand in it, you know, keeping us safe and sparing my life, sparing my family's life. Um, me getting to Haiti a few days before the earthquake, um, being in the right place at the wrong time and all that stuff. Like there's so many little things that add up. You're like, Oh, there's no way that that was all coincidence, you know? Um, as far as dealing with the trauma goes, I think I, um, dealt with it better, um, than my family did. My family got whisked out of Haiti right away. Didn't have time to process like I did. I got to stay in Haiti for a couple additional weeks and things started to like make sense more in my brain. And I was able to like rationalize why some stuff happened and why, you know, just I answered some questions for myself because I was seeing it firsthand where there's a lot of unanswered questions for my mom and my sisters. Um, just like something crazy happened to them. And now they're in Connecticut in like first world country, you know, being taken care of and recovering and culture shock. Even if nothing had happened, it's always a culture shock going from Haiti to the, to the States. Um, on top of that, with the uh, nonprofit that I started, I began speaking at colleges and fundraisers and everybody. I was telling my story to everybody, just raising awareness, raising money. Um, people wanted to hear the story anyway, and that's therapeutic. Um, and I don't know how many hundreds of times I've I've shared my story now, but it, it's been a lot. Um, but it has to be for the right reasons. Like there's guys that there's guys on my shift who probably haven't even heard my story and I've been at my station for eight years. Um, it'll come up over a, you know, cigar and one-on-one sitting out front, maybe, you know, if, if, uh, the opportunity presents itself and stuff, but I'm not like, I don't just jump to like tell you how cool my life is or anything like that. Um, I just, you know, I I'm just me. Um, so, but that being said, it really helped me process. It really helped me process. Um, I did go to a therapist a little bit um, initially just because people wanted to make sure that I was okay. Um, they're like, yeah, get your head checked. Make sure, you know, there's nothing here lingering that, you know, could creep up on you later. Um, and I did, and it, it seemed like everything was okay. Like all the all the checks and balances were there. Um, I was processing in a healthy way i was still like very motivated fitness oriented eating right talking about my story trying to make 
lemonade out of lemons, you know, this bad thing that happened, how can I make something good come from it? You know, and, and, and I was, um, and meanwhile, my family was just kind of stuck in a rut for a little bit. Um, lots of therapy, um, treating medical complications for years. Um, and, uh, they're good now, but it took them a lot longer to kind of get through it. And they eventually started a music ministry for Haiti where people would donate instruments. They'd take the instruments down to Haiti. They'd put on a music camp, teach the kids some songs. They get to keep the instruments and they do that about once or twice a year. So that eventually ended up being one of the ways that they gave back and was also therapeutic for them. Beautiful. That's yeah. I, I forgot until we started talking. My my first wife, my son's mother, her grandfather started a orphanage in Haiti as well. And I don't know, you know, uh, if it's still going now. But I totally forgot about that. That was another connection I had with Haiti, you know, years ago. Um, it's interesting because there's lots of people on here that have really struggled, especially when they get into our profession. They start seeing the things that we see and they get sleep deprivation and all the other compacting, you know, uh, amplifying elements of maybe what's already occurred earlier in their life. But there are some people that do well. And I've said this we, we, before, before we hit record, I've said this. I had, you know, quite a few things happen when I was young, but I think why I was just so lucky, and this is purely, you know, a life roulette win that's it i mean i haven't done anything special at all but i grew up on a farm i grew up in a large family where we ate together and made fun of each other um had all kinds of people walk through the door from extended royal family through to you know travelers gypsies um you know watch my parents be very kind you know my dad was a veterinary surgeon so he was healing i was around blood and guts so i think again there was there was enough good to offset the bad and help me process it um you obviously, when we you know we've listened to you, to the story for over an hour and a half now, have got some very significant events that one would say, "Oh, well, you must have PTSD." And you talked about showing the signs, but then it sounds like the ability to become a rescuer, become a fixer, and part of the solution was healing for you. Talk to me about you know if 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 that observation is right, but also then we talked before we hit record about some of the people you've lost in your department because they one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we compare trauma well i was never at the haitian air, uh, earthquake and trevor's fine so what the fuck is wrong with me why am i such a pussy well obviously mm -hmm. it's way more complicated than that and especially the formative years before you put on the badge has a big part of it i was from a very loving strong you know um family clearly you were because you literally navigated the planet helping other people as well so what is your observations of why you're okay and then let's talk about some of the people that you have lost and the, the mental health element in your department okay yeah so one of the things i mentioned earlier was the realization i had as a young uh teenager the first time i lived in haiti to either you got to accept death or you're not going to have a good time. You're going to live in fear and it's going to be crippling. Um, so that early, early on realization, uh, along with being exposed to some of that trauma, even before the earthquake, um, seeing 
seeing dead bodies and and gunfire and and whatnot and being able in that mindset being able to be like this is how it is this is how it is like it wasn't me today cool you know we're gonna keep moving forward um and that's a tough mindset like not many people grow up like that and i think it can really be devastating for the wrong person um either you you enjoy it which isn't good you turn into like a killer or something or it just ends up creeping up on you and you just break out of nowhere um i think those are kind of the two um bad reactions to that mindset um but it that didn't happen to me fortunately um and then later i i was able to reflect on like well this isn't the worst thing that has ever happened to me so i'm okay you know i've i've dealt with worse um and my worst day on a scale from like most other people's worst day is like way different right so we we respond to emergency calls and somebody got their uh, coffee order wrong and they're having a mental breakdown right that's like their worst day you know and it's it's comical but maybe you know they lived a really blessed life you know um whereas somebody else's worst day like they had a family member killed or or something you know or or their dog got hit by a car you know these are all different um uh, different scales of, of bad things that can happen that people may or may not have experienced yet in their life um so i think what allowed me to be a level-headed emergency responder was the the spectrum of what I've already experienced and having processed that in my own way um and for long enough to know that I am okay um I think there's lots of different ways to process trauma and uh there's good ways there's bad ways um and then there's like st- like clinically studied ways you know go go to therapy you know that's a pretty well accepted um way to process and some people need one session some people need 10 years i don't know like um so i I think everybody is different but i know that for me what i did worked and it's helped me in the career that i've chosen um so yeah yeah there's that um would you would you feel like you had security even though you were moving to different dangerous countries did you feel secure in your family unit because it seems like a lot of men and women that i know you know that i've i've got to speak to so we didn't lose we almost lost there was definitely that you know this is maslow's hierarchy of needs security is the first thing um like you were saying with trying to give food you can't give food if people keep bum rushing the truck um, and so whether it was being around a deck addiction, whether around sexual abuse, whether in a foster system, you know, whatever it was, there's not that family unit that you're part of that, you know, whatever happens in the planet Earth, at least you've got them. Yeah, no, we, we had a really strong family, a tight family, because um, we were all that we had, like, no matter where we went, we had to rely on each other. Um and i think after the haiti earthquake even even more so like you don't know what you have until you lose it um and then i was able to get it back um so that like really like instilled value 
even more than than I already valued my family, but even more so um, having to think about not having them anymore and then getting them back is just, oh my gosh, like I think about it every day still, you know, and this happened over 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, we had a, we had a tight family. We all live different places now, but um, we talk almost every day, at least text, you know, so. And actually, since the, this new baby has arrived, everybody has flown out to visit all my family members. So that's been nice. Brilliant. Well, compare that, contrast that then to some of the people that you've lost in your department. I mean, I I do this thing here at the 343 Hero Challenge every year. I've told this story on here before, but I've done it for, I think it's nine years now. The first year I had six names of people who'd lost. And it wasn't just mental health. It was the cost of the job. And I just did it this September and I had 92 names on my back. So I haven't met a department. I haven't had a conversation yet with someone who hasn't at least lost someone in their their atmosphere to overdose or suicide. Yeah. Um, so my department is pretty big. Um, we have almost 200 fire stations and over 3,000 firefighters. And so like stuff happens to everybody, right? That statistically like people are going to die get married have kids divorce whatever um it's just such a huge active family that things are bound to happen right um but when somebody dies it's a big deal um for for any department and we, we take it very seriously we we have a team that's like the funeral team and and stuff like that um because it's just such a like we want to honor those people um the best that we can and respect the families the best that we can and my department does a really good job of doing that um so when there is a funeral like we all try and go um you're either working or you're at the funeral um that's like that's the right way to approach any any funeral as a as a firefighter um and then there's obviously like not everybody can go because maybe you're on a trip you planned a couple years ago and you're in Africa and like, you just, uh, you know, people understand, but you try and be there. And it seems like I'm at a funeral at least once a year, sometimes more than once a year. Um, and sometimes it's like a line of duty death where somebody dies in a fire. Um, but more often than not it seems like it's suicide related and um and a lot of them don't even get talked about like they like some of them it's it's just like they try and cover it up a little bit or they treat it like it wasn't a suicide and and still try and honor that person um but it's it's weird um the the fact that this happened it seems like it, it happens so often and it's really hard to catch. Like, um, I was listening to uh, your your last podcast um, with the fellow from uh, he he was on a task force too as well. Yeah, Timmy Gleason. Yeah, Timmy Gleason, and and he had it all planned out right. And uh, somehow his captain got involved and saved him. Like that's really cool. Really cool that somebody would would be heads up enough to one recognize that and two take action. Um. And that was like an intervention, brought the crew over, everything. So really, really neat. Um, it it seems like our our lives move so fast. It's it's really 
easy to overlook those little details or those signs um, that somebody's not doing well. And, um, or, or you notice it, but you don't give it the respect it deserves. And then some people are really resilient fighters and you'd never think that they would have an issue. And other people that seem like um, they are struggling are the fighters and they're like, you can't kill them, you know? Um, so I, I guess I'll share a story that I've never talked about and I, I want to be sensitive about it um, and honor him the right way. But there was a guy who was on my, uh, he worked at my station for a number of years. We worked together and he, uh, he, to describe his personality, he he was the last guy that you would think would have an issue. Um, hard worker, entre- entrepreneur, always had like 10 things going. Um, seemed like the most successful business guy um, outside of being a firefighter, like on the side stuff, like most successful business guy that I knew um, in the fire service and uh, had a wife was about to have his first kid, like weeks from having his first kid and he kills himself and um, like really shocking to all of us um, and devastating. Like, what, what do you, what do you do with that? Like, how could that have been prevented? And I know that, um, if you had asked him, is something wrong? I don't think he would have said anything. I think he would have been like, no, no, it's cool dog. Like, I'm good. I'm good. You know, that was just his mentality. Like, he's always like, he doesn't need help. He's good. Like he, he's doing great. All that stuff. Um, so yeah, how do you, that, that raised the question, like, how do we recognize this in the future? How, how can this be prevented? And it's really tough. Like, I know like there's been programs put in place now to, it's like preventative maintenance type stuff. Um, so I do think that's important and to be aware of it, but I don't know. Like I'm, I'm still at a loss to be honest. A few of the things, I mean, obviously I've been doing this for seven years now, so I'm just a big sponge of all these incredible people stories and, you know, literally leaders in their field in all these different disciplines. But a few things that really resonate with me, firstly, from it's the last guy I would have thought it was a number of times I've heard that. Um, And I always point out if you and I went on a TC right now, you know, and people were entrapped and we walked up to the car and went, oh, fucking hell. It looks awful, you know. It's not, it's not very professional. So you wear your mask for your job, you know what I mean? I mean, physically and and proverbially. But the problem is, as you said, we're we're just so overworked and tired that people can't, won't take that mask off and and be, you know, uh, vulnerable and say, "Man, God, I had a a uh, three year old decapitated in in a car, um, and I had a two year old at home." Um, and, uh, I wrote about it in my book and it was, you know, it was one of those things where actually my crew was amazing. Like we all responded and I was on a truck company. We were supposed to go back and extricate the body and my captain and engineer DFO'd us, me and my, my partner. And we had the same time on only like a two years in the fire service or something, three years. And he's like, you're going to see enough horrible shit in your career. You don't need to see that. And they were about both about to retire and they ordered us to stay at the station. They went, cut the body out. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so we wear that mask, but, but taking it off and allowing some of these calls to bother you, they should bother you. That shouldn't happen to a three-year-old child, you know? So you've got that. Um, another huge warning sign that none of us talk about is busyness. If you have got demons, if you just sign up for all the OT or you have a side business and you're constantly doing that every waking hour, it might be that you're just grinding and you're just, you know, working towards purchasing a home, whatever. But you also got to take a step back and go, is, is this person really being present? Are they really being with their family or is it escapism? And we don't ever think of, you know, work overtime as a negative coping mechanism, but it, it can be. And as far as one of the solutions, I worked for four departments, four hiring processes. That was three polygraphs, four psych tests. And I realized that we're just doing it completely wrong. The money is already there. Polygraph is smoke and mirrors bullshit just to get you to confess something that you've done. The psych test I know now from numerous psychologists and psychiatrists was never, ever meant to be a standalone test to find out if Trevor or James are going to be good firefighters. It's just not. It's not designed for that. It's designed for forensic psychology with a gamut of other tests. So rather than doing that, how about we, when we hire someone on and they got probation and they got academy, why don't we give them six counseling sessions knowing that all of us are going to have traumas that we bring into the job? And I think that's the real, the real piece that we're missing. Of course, there's some horrible calls and they should haunt us. And I, and I've said this before and you, you, talked about it in your story. I think it's the people that are left behind that really haunt us. It's not the grotesque, macabre, mangled body so much as the loved ones screaming after they just lost their their person. So you've got that too. But what if we took the money from polygraphs and psych, got rid of those two, did a background check, did a written test, did a physical test. All right, now you know, you should know if that's a good person or not. And you've got a probation to get rid of them if they're not. And then say, all right, we've got, we're going to hire, you know, psychologists for our department. And over the next three months, we're going to give you six counseling sessions. You have an opportunity to offload trauma that you brought in. You deliberately um, make mental health a priority at the front door with your new hires. And you've removed any barrier to entry. Because if, you know, Steve or Sarah start struggling or they want to tune up, immediately they know, all right, I'm going to go to doctor, whoever. And, I, you know, there's no barrier. What happens is our guys get into crisis. Now they're scrambling and it's an EAP Russian roulette. And this provider is supposed to be really good, but they don't take my insurance or I can't afford this one. And this is a problem we have. So that's just some of the takeaways that I've learned of these ones that fall through the cracks is why do we not start looking them, looking for them on day one? Not to eliminate them, to allow that trauma to become post-traumatic growth. So just like you with your story, some horrible things that happen actually become a superpower as a firefighter. Yeah. Yeah. Th those are all really good points. Um, especially from someone with your experience. I like, I like that approach. Um, or yeah, just having like easy access to counseling where for us, we get a bonus for getting our like physical checkups. Um, so if you don't go do it, like you're leaving money on the table a couple uh counseling sessions thrown in there could you know i, I think they'd be able to motivate the people that didn't even want to go if there's money involved you know like get a half percent if you do your session this year and one to six like 
it's up to you, you know, at least do one. Yeah. Yeah. Or make it mandatory. So, you know, again, at the front door, it's normal. You know, you have to do a good department. You have a physical agility test. You know, you have to do it. If you're a pool, I mean, a lotion lifeguard or a pool lifeguard, you have to research your swim test, your toes, your CPR. Why is it any different? You know, you don't have to talk about anything. You can talk about the weather or, but I guarantee you, they probably start opening some doors as you get comfortable. You'll be like, all right, well, while I'm here, let me tell you about that house fire where there was an efficiency and we dragged the guy out and he was sloughing in my hands. Well, you know what I mean? Just get it off your chest. So there's no downside to it at all. Yeah. I like that. Now it's just getting, uh, getting departments to adapt policies like that. Absolutely. Well, we were talking about the length of the podcast already at two hours and we haven't even talked about firefighting yet. So let's kind of jump into your journey, but you've got a unique journey. So you've come from the world of carpentry. You've also got a nonprofit building houses on the side. Walk me through the front door of the fire service to when you realized that your background and the skills and the toolbox that you had were very applicable to forcible entry. And then let's walk through to the inception of the Williams Key and beyond. Cool. Um, so my journey getting hired with the fire department took a long time. I did everything right. I did the Explorer program starting when I was a teenager at 15. Got my EMT, did the classes, did the academies. As soon as I turned 18, I started testing or started putting in my application. So first one was with LA County because that's the department that I knew I wanted to be at and I'd been training with. But I was like, I mean, I'll work anywhere. So I, over the next couple of years, I applied to 60 different fire departments. I traveled all over the US, uh, Washington, Texas, New York, all the big cities. Um, And it took, I think like, six years, six or seven years to, to finally get on the job. So I got hired around 26 and, um, it's like in retrospect, I'm glad it took me that long because I've seen the young kids get on the job and just get eaten alive. And there's so much life experience that they don't have, um, that can kind of hurt you as a, as a firefighter. Um, it's better to understand how the world works a little bit more, what it's like to have different jobs, pick up some trades, um, versus being an 18 year old who doesn't even have a cell phone or something, you know, like how are you, you're not going to be as, as good as a help. Um, you, you might end up being more of a burden. Um, anyway, maybe I'm just justifying the fact that I didn't get hired right away, but, um, in the grand scheme of things, I'm glad for the skills I was able to pick up along the way. Um, so carpentry, um, and working construction as a carpenter, I treated that job uh, pretty seriously. And, um, I, in my head, I was a firefighter already, even though I wasn't. And, I would throw my ladders the same way I threw them at the fire station. I would flick out my extension cord the way I'd flick out a hose. Um, and then obviously like the etiquette to, I was, I, I wanted to keep my nose clean, stay out of trouble, all that. So that was going through my head every day, all day, every day until I got hired. Um, fortunately for me, learning about doors, doors and locks, came into play um being like a really 
valuable knowledge once I became a firefighter because you go from installing doors to breaking down doors as a firefighter. And once I realized that we're doing it almost every shift, it kind of hurt me because I was like, oh, these doors are so expensive. This is unnecessary. There's like, there's better ways. Sometimes there's better ways to get into these doors. Um, And depending on the nature of the call, we don't always have to be like super fast. Like we don't have to kick in every door. We can spend an extra 10 or 20 seconds, like fiddling the the latch on the lock and maybe not break the door at all. Um, And I also owned other businesses um, to where I've been broken into before. And I know it costs two grand to replace a door. Um, And if this is happening, like, or it didn't need to, that's just such a waste. Like, and I feel like we're not doing our jobs to the best of our ability if we're leaving, you know, grandma with a security issue and no way to pay for it. So I had made some tools for myself um, as a carpenter and I knew how to pick locks and everything involving doors and locks. I had like specialty tools um, that I either made or acquired and bought um, to help me be like an efficient door guy. And I started bringing my toolbox on calls because I realized, so the area I work in, in in West Hollywood, there's every type of, every type of door and building. And we have high rise there. Um, we have mid rise, we have commercial, we have residential, just any type of door that is out there. Like, I mean, there's thousands, but there, there's such a, such a range, um, that I usually have a tool that can get into like a door I come across. Um, last resort being to pick it, which is a specialty skill that not everybody has. Um, I can do it, but it takes more time. So I can almost get into every door without having to do damage if I have enough time. Um, but one tool I would always bring out, which is a tool I made out of a framing square and is now known as the, the Williams key. Um, I was bringing it out all the time and it was getting us in. And before long, other people saw that they noticed it. They'd always make fun of me for my tools, but fire service, you get made fun of for everything um, until it works. And then, Hey, uh, that stupid tool you have, you mind making me one? You know, like (laughs) I started getting approached like that. And um, it, I mean, it takes a while just to make one tool. So I went and sourced a fabricator that could make a small batch. And I was like, yeah, I'll make like 10 or 20 of these things, give them out to my friends, then they'll stop bugging me. No intention on making money, no intention on starting a business. And so I had them made, passed them out. Before long, there's like a hundred more people that had seen the tool out in the field working, knew I made it and wanted one. And I was like, all right, well, the first batch was just like, I gave them away, you know, um, just to make better firemen out there. And, um, but now there's a lot of people I don't even know. I'm going to have to like charge them, you know, and I'll make a bigger batch and I'll just charge them whatever. So I did. And after that, it just took off. Everybody wanted one. I was like, ah, oh, shoot. Okay. This is turning into something. Um, So I had them powder coated black so that I could screen or not screen print. Um, So I could laser engrave a logo on them. I came up with a logo and I've always been like, pretty good at um, design, like Photoshop, branding. Um, I was into, uh, I did some sales for Google at one point. Um, 
during the before getting hired. Um, so I learned about business and sales and all that stuff. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I just, I don't know. That's just something that I, I'm kind of good at. So I was able to make a, a brand pretty quickly. And I've always liked skulls. I think skulls are cool. So I put a skull on there and it's a keyhole. Um, and it just, I called it the Williams key. And I got somebody to show me how to use a laser engraver. And I started engraving the logo on there. And then people wanted their name on there too. So I left one side blank for somebody's name if they want it. If they don't want it, it stays blank. And that really pushed it. Like the customization, um, they turned into being good gifts, good way to mark your tool and affordable enough to where like everybody could like, you know, throw a couple bucks at it and buy one. And I told him like, Hey, go make your own. If like, you don't have to buy this for me. Like that's not the point. Like I want you to be better at your craft. So go make your own if you want, or if not, yeah, I'll, I'll sell you one. Um, so that was my approach and it started growing really fast, made a website, made an Instagram. People started sending me content of them being Johnny on the spot and getting into doors and impressing their crew. Um, so that's like the perfect product, right? One that makes its own content. Um, so that part was really easy. And then these videos would start going viral and get a million views or 3 million views. And then orders would really take off. Um, so it's just been this machine that's been growing and growing and growing. And at this point I've sold 20,000 of them and it was the, the base for like probably 10 other tools that I've made now, um, where, um, probably nobody wants to buy a wedge for me if they'd never heard of me or the Williams key, but mm -hmm. now I have a glow in the dark wedge of the keyhole skull, you know, that, um, people buy and a lot of other stuff that people buy and door hangers. So after you make entry and nobody was home, you knew, you know, that you weren't robbed, but the fire service was there, the police, and you leave a little hanger with a note. Um, so just little crazy random products like that. Now that the, the website's full of stuff. Um, so it's been like a crazy journey. Um, and it's really made my life very busy uh, I like being involved with it as much as possible. Um, I'm able to outsource pretty much everything. Um, like I've got a warehouse with fabricators. They make this stuff and they powder coat it. And now I don't engrave anymore. Now it gets screen printed. So I don't have to do that part either. And I've got almost 20 distributors now. So they market and package and sell for me. Um, so like, I don't have any employees. Um, I'm just kind of the, the puppet master behind it all. And um, I love interacting with people. Like I get emails every day and messages like, Hey, I was having trouble with this door. Do you mind, you know, telling me what you think about it? Or is the Williams key the right tool for it? Or maybe something else is. And I'm like, yeah, send me videos and photos and I'll help talk you through this door. And maybe there's a better, better tool out there for you. Or maybe you need to break it. Like, that, that's the fun part. We get to break stuff too sometimes. So I'm I'm not against uh, the Halligans, the set of irons, the ro rotary saw, chainsaw, any of that. I love using that stuff too, but it needs to be warranted. Well, I mean, 
I love that whole side of the fire service. One of my friends, Eric Wheaton, has a kind of through the lot class that he does. I'm sure he uses some of your tools. He must do. Um, and actually, I was just at um, the Brothers Helping Brothers conference speaking in Ohio, and uh, Corey from Crackle was there. And I'm actually on the cover this month, so it's kind of cool. I got to meet yeah, him. Yeah, you know, congrats. That's awesome. Be there. Thank you. But um, he, we actually gave me one of your tools as well. He had a few there. So um, I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. Obviously, I'm not at a, at a department at the moment, so it'd be a bit weird just going to my neighbor's house. But uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's funny because I can remember a specific call. We got called and it was an EMS call in one of the hotels at Disney. And their bathroom doors are like solid, you know, steel steel doors, you know, the, the steel outside. And so this person sadly had locked herself in in the bathroom to take her own life. And we're trying to get in. I'm trying to shoulder it because we haven't got any tools with us. No one told us it was <laughs> locked in a bathroom that was, you know, exterior door quality. Um, and one of the security guards at Disney was like, do you want to use the card? And he was thinking, you know, like in the movies. And it was so weird because we actually used it. And at that moment, it worked. But going back to spirituality and ghosties, I had the the lock turned and I swear to God that I felt it turned from the inside, like someone opened it and all of a sudden I went in. Mm. Now, yes, I'm pushing against the lock and, you know, it could have just given, but it was more than that. It's one of, I've had two really weird experiences, that and another one I wrote about the book um, of a guy that was burned. Absolutely, his body didn't know that his soul didn't know his body was dead. I mean, it defied all anatomy and physiology, but this is the other one. And so it's weird that that was a kind of like through the lock story as well. But I agree with you 100%. You know, they, we say, you know, risk a lot to save a lot. All right, house is on fire. I don't give a shit. You know, Halligan, sledge, whatever you need, get that door open. But as you mentioned, you know, well being check. Ladies probably in the back, deaf as a coot, watching, you know, reading the paper. You don't want to be smashing in a door. So I think that those are those are such great tools. And I don't think a lot of us, you know, are aware or train enough on those, you know, to have that um, customer service element. I don't think customer service is going to everyone's house installing smoke alarms. I think that's not what we're supposed to be doing. But customer service is definitely, you know, a back to bed call or a well-being check where you haven't destroyed someone's door and done, you know, more damage than if you hadn't shown up at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think the re- one of the biggest rewarding p- parts of the role that I'm in now is I get feedback from people with stories of how they use the tool. And there's no way to quantify like how good the tool is doing, you know, out there because I, I don't hear like probably even half a percent of all the all the stories that are going on. But I'm sure it's being used like right now. There's so many of them out there like it's be- being used all day long uh, for all different reasons, hopefully mostly all good reasons um because it can get into the wrong hands i'm sure but um the the cool stories where i'm like man that's what made it worth it um is it's like contributed to like saving people's lives like i've gotten feedback from at least three different people saying like they were able to prevent a suicide where they they were able to get in in time and like pull somebody off the ledge or give narcan or whatnot um to where if they didn't get in that way um they would have had to have waited longer for the key to show up or the door to be broken down um and then there's the like we got like a personal experience of mine is it was uh it was kind of like a welfare check and normally we'd wait maybe for the 
the keys of the building manager to show up. Like there's no urgency, right? You show up. I'm like, ah, let me try my, let me try my tools, open up the door and there's somebody in full arrest, but viable full arrest. So they had like just gone down and we were able to make the save. So um, yeah, it's just stories like that, that make it really worth it. We had same department. We had Orange County sheriffs upstairs and then our fire station was downstairs two different departments reedy creek was the the station and the lock had failed and the cop was locked in the bathroom downstairs in in their office um and so we had to break in and again understanding the value of the door i was able because it didn't have your through the through the lock stuff um was able just to attack the actual handle itself so ultimately go back to you know avoid and then they could put a new lock in yeah. But somewhere around is still his cell phone camera of us rescuing his ass from a from a uh, toilet. <laughs> so that's my favorite possible entry story. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I just got invited to my local police department. So now I have immunity in my city um, to like present the tool and, and everything. And at, when I was done, um, they're like, well, can, can you open the doors in here? And I was like, oh, normally not like you guys have like high security doors like they're really well made and stuff and i was like all right fine i'll just try one and it opened and they were all like oh and, it, <laughs> and they were sold on it you know i'm like oh shoot i didn't even think that was gonna work <laughs> so it's, it's cool it's, it's been a lot of fun well for people listening where can they find the key the other tools that you have williamskey.com that's the website everything goes through there Lots of other distributors. I'm sure if you Google it, you'll you'll find other places to buy it. It's all the same to me. Just want to make the world a better place a little bit for uh, first responders. And actually, there's like tons of trades that use it now, like locksmiths, military, uh, real estate, um, moms that, you know, there are families where their kids lock themselves in the bathroom even. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of good uses for it. Just use it responsibly. That's my only request <laughs> absolutely even when i was at anaheim one of our guys i mean it's it's funny when you look at it, it just takes someone to have a take a step back and have a common sense perspective and you know we had all the jimmy lock stuff for the cars most of my career prior to that and none of us knew how to use them we just they were in a bag in the engine and no one has mm -hmm. shown us how to jimmy a lock um and then someone's like wait a second these tow truck drivers are using this blood pressure cuff looking thingy why don't we try that? So years ago, this was oh five, um, that we got that, and I was like, "This is so bloody easy." You make a hole, and then you maneuver the little rod, and you know, put the window down, pull the lock open, whatever it is. So I actually bought my when I transitioned out of the fire service. I have one in my car. Post fire service, I've let I think three people into their car just from having the right tool. So it doesn't matter if you're a firefighter, like you said. It might be someone lock themselves out of their house once you confirm it is their house or their yeah. car, you know, especially in Florida. Check their ID. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the police come and they're cuffing you. Um, but yeah, but it's, you know, to me, when you transition out, you become, you know, a sheepdog in your community, you know. So there are some tools. I have extinguishers and trauma kits and, you know, all kinds of stuff to mitigate whatever disaster I might come across in the car. So, um, you know, your your tool that I have now is going to join my little toolbox. So thank you. Nice. And then just for your viewers, since there are some visual aspects to this. Yes. The new video podcast that we there have. There you go. They're not all pink. This is a special edition one, but it shows up best on the camera. So love it. Williams key. Beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, we want to obviously make sure that we talked about the Williams key. That's what you're known for. But 
to spend so much time going through your earlier years, I think has been amazing. And then to couple it, like you said, with Timmy Gleason, for example, you've got these rescuers and then you've got you, a resident at the time. Um, it's been a phenomenal conversation and, you know, it's a pretty, uh, pretty epic uh, childhood that you've had with your family. So I want to thank you so much, firstly, for coming on on the podcast, but more importantly, for the vulnerability and, you know, getting to some of those emotions, because that's that's what grabs people by the throat, you know, and uh, reliving those. I know sometimes it's kind of pulling the, the bandaid off a little bit, but these are the these are the stories that we need to hear in that particular incident. I mean, that many people died and a lot of people don't even know that story. You've you've kind of brought some of those souls back to life for us to to revisit. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, you got me to tear up on this one and dive deep. And it was a pleasure being on the show, James. Thank you. <laughs>